This morning I'm reading from the book of James, chapter 5. And after that, I'll also read an article from Our World Belongs to God, which is a contemporary testimony of the Christian Reformed Church. But first, let me read from James 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. I feel a little shaky after reading that, but people of God, even this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll also be reading Article 48 from Our World Belongs to God. And this article, if you um, are wondering where this comes from, we have these little red books, Our Faith. So maybe you have one of these from a previous uh, Dive into Doctrine session, or there's actually a link in the bulletin where you can go and click if you want to read more of the contemporary testimony. But at the end of each of the articles, they have little scripture citations for where they get these ideas from. And so James 5, which I just read, is one of the citations uh, for this week's article number 48, which says this. Our work is a calling from God. We work for more than wages and manage for more than profit so that mutual respect and the just use of goods and skills may shape the workplace. While we earn or profit, we love our neighbors by providing useful products and services. In our global economy, we advocate meaningful work and fair wages for all. Out of the Lord's generosity to us, we give freely and gladly of our money and time. In 1986, Lance Morrow wrote a piece for Time magazine on the extravagant wealth of the deposed dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos and his wife, Imelda. He explains how they had millions, indeed billions, in accumulated and plundered wealth upon deposition. They had office towers in Manhattan, waterfront estate on Long Island, Dozens of country houses throughout the Philippines, even a second secret palace. Millions in jewels and clothes. On a single day in New York, Imelda would spend $10,000 on bedsheets. She also had 2,700 pairs of shoes. Imelda Marcos's collection of designer shoes became this kind of global symbol of wealth that her family had stolen from the Filipino people. Even decades later, after being deposed, after having the extent of their corruption uncovered, she still defended her shoe collection. 
She said, when I became first lady, it became demanding for me. I had to dress up and make myself more beautiful because the poor are always looking for a star. It takes a special kind of delusion, I think, to believe that the poor would rather have a star to look at than the money and rights that were taken from them, but okay. More than 30 years after the Marcoses were deposed, a writer, Teresa Reyes, went looking for that shoe collection to see what had become of it. She found that 720 were in a shoe museum in Manila. Out of that 720, only 250 were displayed. Over 400 were just put into storage. But aside from that, a huge number of the shoes were damaged and destroyed. She writes that by 2012, more than 1,000 pairs had been damaged by termites and mold after years of being stashed away into boxes. And they'd only been found and discovered uh, after being drenched in rainwater that leaked through the ceiling in the museum storage where they were locked away. This is a vivid picture of what James writes about when he says that your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes. He might have said to Imelda, your shoes are covered in mold and holes from the termites. These six short verses in James offer a stern warning to rich oppressors. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. This is what N.T. Wright describes as one of the sharpest warnings against careless luxury anywhere in the Bible. We come to the text this morning in the context of work and justice because of our contemporary testimony. We also come to it with our own images of careless luxury. We might come to this text with a picture like of someone like Imelda Marcos. But let's look a little closer and see who James has in mind, see what they have done wrong and what the result is. James is writing to Jesus' followers who are scattered throughout the nations. He is writing to communities that have fallen on hard times because of famine or persecution or some combination of the two. There's a decent chance that this James is Jesus' brother. And we can see that he writes with the conviction that those who belong to the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus would live in a way that's consistent with those kingdom values. And that's why he has absolutely no patience for faith without deeds. It's a conviction that the inner workings of faith in Jesus will be worked out in faithful living. And so here in chapter 5, James takes aim at people who hoard their wealth. We see from verse 2 and 3 that this took the form of hoarding grain and clothes and gold or silver. In terms of our contemporary testimony, they have worked, but only for wages and only for profit. They have stored up more grain than they can eat, and so they watch it rot before their eyes, like an old container of spinach that starts to leak out into the fridge and stink up the kitchen. It's that feeling of needing to clear out the old moldy food from the refrigerator to make room for the new fresh groceries. They store up an excess of food. So James says to them, look, your wealth has rotted. It's like you're dumping money straight into the compost bin. 
They also hoard clothes. Clothes would have been a symbol of wealth and status, much like it was for Imelda Marcos. But those things don't last either. The moths eventually find the clothes. The termites in the water find the shoes. And even gold and silver, which are usually really reliable investments, James says, even those are corroded and rusted. Which is a little bit funny because gold doesn't actually rust and corrode like other metals do. But James is making the point that even the most permanent and the most reliable earthly treasure has no lasting value. So where did their wealth come from? Who are these people? What's the backstory here? If we go on to verse 4, we get some clues about the identity of these rich oppressors. The charges laid out by James could have been leveled against rich people just generally speaking, but he seems to have something more specific in mind. He seems to be talking to wealthy farmers and landowners who got their wealth by withholding wages from their workers. This sharpest warning against careless luxury is aimed at business owners who don't pay their workers enough. The commentator Ralph Martin explains that the folks working the land may have formerly been small landowners, small farmers who had their own land, their own farms, but they have been swallowed up by the elite. The elite are represented by, by a small but powerful class of large landowners. And so in directing this charge against the wealthy landowners, James is interpreting social crimes as things that offend divine law. He is telling them, God is keeping track of your workers' pay stubs, and folks, things are not adding up. God cares deeply about how you conduct your work and business. And people must come before wealth. People must come before profit. And so based on this background, James gives the stern warning in verse 1 that misery is coming. We see no call to repentance, no advice on how to use wealth well. James is not mincing his words. He is not giving any qualifications. He is not dulling the edges of his rebuke. He's saying, look, the damage has been done. The rich landowners have clearly taken a side And it is the side that is opposed to God. Their actions in their business reveal what is in their hearts and show that they are far from God. Now listen, you rich people, says James. When we think of rich people, the most extreme examples come to mind. The Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks of the world the celebrities and sports stars, maybe even the English monarchy or the corrupt Imelda Marcoses of the world. As N.T. Wright says, wealth is always a relative thing. We can always think of people who have much more than we do, and so we excuse ourselves from the accusation of being one of those rich people. But at the heart of James' whole message is a conviction that those who belong to the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus would live in a way that is consistent with those kingdom values. One of the key words in the book of James is the word perfect. 
And he uses this word a perfect seven times. The perfect means living a fully integrated, a, a whole life. It means living in a way that's consistent with the values and beliefs you receive from Jesus. So the problem that James identifies is living a fractured life. Living in a way that is inconsistent with our beliefs or having inconsistencies in our own character. We can always point to a large number of folks who are more rich than we are. But it doesn't take too much digging to see the ways that we live fractured and inconsistent lives. In the categories that James identifies with the rich, we may also be found guilty. Food, clothing, wealth, and wages. We may be guilty of wasting food. According to the National Zero Waste Council's research, almost 2.2 million tons of edible food is wasted in Canada each year costing Canadians more than $17 billion. Our wealth is literally rotting in front of our eyes. What's more, much of our food is grown on land that was unjustly seized from indigenous communities when treaties were broken. Or we may be guilty of benefiting from a system that treats workers at meatpacking plants unjustly or takes advantage of migrant workers to harvest crops paying them low wages, making them work in harsh conditions. We've seen this exacerbated by the pandemic as huge COVID outbreaks happen at meatpacking facilities. And our first concern is whether or not we have enough bacon in the freezer just in case prices go up or supply goes down, rather than being concerned for the health and safety of the workers. And you might not have 3,000 pairs of shoes, And yet we may be guilty of participating in a system of fast fashion that relies on low-wage workers and sweatshops or that ends up in a landfill after only a handful of wares. And in terms of precious metals of gold and silver, well, the discovery of gold has usually been very good news for the people with the guns and very bad news for indigenous communities who end up getting displaced or worse. And even if we don't carry around gold coins in our pockets, many of us do carry around cobalt in our phones and devices, up to 60% of which comes from unregulated mines, many of which use children as young as seven as miners, where they breathe in cobalt-laden dust that can cause fatal lung ailments while working in tunnels that are liable to collapse. Do I need to go on? I mean, the point is that it doesn't really take much work to start uncovering the ways that we all live fractured lives. We all live under the illusion that everything we have we earned justly through our own hard work and that anyone could have what we have if they would just pull up their bootstraps. Make no mistake, that is a lie that we tell ourselves to assuage our guilt. We live in ways that are inconsistent with our beliefs. We have inconsistencies in our character, and we are more compromised than we care to admit. And I get it. Our lives are complex and busy. Economic systems are 
complex, much more complex than I can understand. And even those of us with the best intentions will find it difficult, if not impossible, to live fully integrated lives. What should be clear to us is that it will take nothing less than a supernatural act of God to restore us, to make us whole people. It takes nothing less than an act of God to nurture in us a faith that is relentless in pursuit of justice, relentless in pursuit of mutual respect and the just use of goods and skills, relentless in pursuit of providing products and services that are useful, relentless in our pursuit of meaningful work and fair wages for people across the globe. Because this stuff is hard and it is demoralizing. We risk getting trapped in unproductive cycles of guilt rather than opening our imaginations to different ways of running our businesses, our workplaces, and our lives. To participate in the mission of God in our work means joining God's mission to restore fractured people and lives and inviting God to reveal those parts of our own lives that are fractured. Joining the mission of God in our work means that we labor for more than wages and we manage for more than profit so that respect and justice for people are the bottom line. It means that discussions about minimum wages are not, first of all, the responsibility of McDonald's, but the responsibility of followers of Jesus Christ. And so we keep James 5 at our side to speak out against the individual and systemic propensity to place profits above people. In the passage we read this morning, James offers no word of comfort to the rich. He offers no forgiveness, no constructive advice on how to use wealth wisely, and no way forward except through judgment. This is because these words are written for people who will not listen. In biblical wisdom literature, these people are called the fool. And the thing that makes a fool a fool is that they cannot be convinced they are foolish. In James, the thing that makes the rich oppressors beyond saving is that they cannot be convinced that they are guilty of doing anything wrong. And so it is their rotting and rusting wealth and their employees' pay stubs that will testify against them when God comes to set the world right. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that does not need to be our story. Like Jesus said, after the rich young ruler wondered how the rich can enter the kingdom of heaven, he says, with people this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The Holy Spirit given to God's people on Pentecost convicts us of all the ways that we are compromised, all the ways that we are fractured and inconsistent. And then, so shapes our imaginations to see how our own vocations can contribute to wholeness, to perfection, to shalom. A missions professor from Toronto once asked a congregation what it means for them to do their jobs to the glory of God. We might phrase the question, how does your job bring wholeness 
and shalom? What does it mean to you to work for more than wages, to manage for more than profit? A man from Hamilton said, I use my abilities to develop affordable housing with supports because I believe Jesus' call to love my neighbor as myself. An architect responded, my goal is to seek justice and beauty through my work as an architect. I believe that good design affects us as a people. And I hope the spaces I create can speak to people's souls, to point towards God's hand in my work. An insurance adjuster responded that I've always felt a passion to advocate for people, to help people navigate complicated situations. And given that I work with people who are in a state of crisis, I think I'm able to show the gospel of Christ by being compassionate, by acting with integrity and fairness and without judgment. We've asked the same question to this congregation And so far, I've received a small number of responses that I'll be sharing uh, next week. Um, And so if you still have thoughts about this, how you would answer this question, please do send them to me yet, still this week. The Holy Spirit is on a mission to make us wholly integrated followers of Jesus, to work for those things that will not rot and rust. And I wish, I wish I had the knowledge and the time to tell each of you what that means for your life, but I don't. Uh, maybe for this congregation, it means calling up the people in your life stage or the people who you know work in your profession to brainstorm together, to be attentive to the spirit at work in each of you, prompting you to align your work with your faith. Maybe all the small business owners need to call each other up and talk about how your companies are working to prioritize people over profit. Or the educators or engineers or retired folks or accountants or insurance providers or stay-at-home parents or students or tradespeople. Or send me your thoughts this week and I'll share them in a little write-up. So I don't have answers for each one of you, but I do believe that as followers of Christ, we are not consigned to defeat and guilt and judgment. But I believe that the Holy Spirit has promised to guide you in community with each other, to be faithful and whole witnesses to God's coming kingdom of peace. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of justice, God who calls us, thank you for this gift of your word that makes us squirm in our seats a little bit. God, you are good, you are just, and you will see to it that peace and justice have the last word. So now help us to receive what we have heard. Help us to discern your spirit at work in us and in all the different places where you've put us. Help us to give freely and gladly of our money and time so that more and more people are drawn to your generosity and to your love. God, there is so much work to do. We trust you now to guide us, to speak clearly to us, and to lead us in the way everlasting. Amen.